Welcome to a special edition of the Royal Alliance UK podcast. My name is Matthew Turner, alongside Anthony Fitzpatrick and Ashley Soden, and we are joined by a very special guest, Eric Schlitt, the managing editor from Pride of Detroit and co-host of the Detroit Lions Breakdown podcast. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. It's nice to see you again. I feel like it's been a long time. Uh, I know, like, literally almost a year, right? A little over, maybe even, but... Um, I'm uh I'm glad that we were able to reconnect again. Yeah, me too. Last time I think your wife got too happy inviting us over. <laughs> but, but there we go. And thank you to Brandon De Bruin as well for the $25 super chat. That's absolutely amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank oh. you. Right, let's crack straight on with with uh chatting lines and let's just take it back to the start and where we left off with you from last time. 2022 season one of ups and downs started with downs and then had a heck of a lot of ups um yeah what what do you think the season kind of told us as a whole if you kind of step back from it and go what what do we know now that perhaps we didn't know then I think you know maybe there were some more substantial questions on whether Holmes and Campbell were it maybe they've been put a little bit to bed I mean do do you think they developed Mm. during the season or they just kind of stayed the course and the luck kind of evened out what what's your takeaway from the entire season do you think yeah, I, I do think there was a lot of skepticism early, right? And and the and the company line was just, you know, total line, stay the course, and we'll start to see the benefits of, of what we're doing. And that's really what we saw, right? Uh, we saw the hard work that they were putting in, as you said, like a couple of luck, couple of breaks started going their way. And then you kind of make your own luck when that happens. And, and the the players, we all I mean, the players were always motivated uh, to play for for this coaching staff. The coaching staff is, is, you know, they're very much players coaches and they are uh, very good motivators. And so you kind of knew that was there, but you're seeing the benefits of that, or you saw the benefits of that in the second half of the season, you saw uh, changes in, in philosophy. You saw a, a uh, confidence, I guess. And when you're confident and you're getting breaks and it just, you can keep that momentum going. I thought they were over able to overcome things that maybe they previously wouldn't have been able to. And and a lot of that goes into, I think, uh, gaining experience, uh, coaching staff, gaining experience, young team gaining experience. And so there was a lot of really positive things that, that set up really nicely uh, at the end of the season that should be able to carry over uh, moving forward as well, because, this is still a young core. This is, uh, for the most part, the the coaching staff is still intact, and and so you have a lot of the core pieces uh, that found success and found a way to learn how to win, still within the building. And, and so, ideally, that should be able they should be able to continue taking steps forward. And I, I think mo- that's what most of the NFL is expecting, right? Um, their favorites to win the division, and and uh, it still doesn't uh, feel real when you say that. By <laughs> <the way. laughs> and. Uh, and there's a lot of you know positive energy around the team, uh, locally, nationally, and it's it's all good vibes right now, especially with you know the way the rest of the division is setting up. The Lions look like they're in uh, in good shape. You were 
are you buying into those good vibes Eric? It's taking the taking the media hat off because I know you have to try and rein this in a little bit with all that, you know. But you as a fan, sort of what you've seen over the second half of the season, what you've seen in the offseason, are you starting to get that little tingle now that things are changing, that you know, things are gonna happen that haven't happened in a long time with this team now in terms of success? Yeah, uh, look, I, I do think the recipe is there, and I do think that the cooks are cooking, and they're they're, they're starting to make it work. Uh, the you, you could get a lot of those vibes when they started stacking wins. Like, I felt really confident with that. I started gaining a lot of confidence then. Uh, but for me, the, the, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back was the Packers game. I went all in on that game, and I, I was I – was, I was very boisterous. I was just, I was on, I was going on podcast saying, you know, we're ready to, we're, we're ready to see what this team can do. And if they are what they, they, we think they are, they'll go in, they'll smack them around and they'll, they'll get the win, even whether the game meant anything or not. And that's what happened. And that is, that was a franchise defining moment uh, in, in week 18. And so for me, that's it. I'm all in. I've got, uh, I'm stockpiling Kool-Aid in my garage and uh, I'm passing it out and throwing it at anybody who wants to walk by because, yeah, I think everything is is there for the taking, and it's it's set up the right way. And I'm 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 very confident uh, as a fan, as an analyst, and uh, I'm excited for what's to come. And okay, as as, as the analyst, then when when we're at one and six, what 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 for you was it that? that button that clicked because at one and six, we were all starting to get very worried. It looked sure. like things weren't going our way. We weren't getting the rub of the green. And then some, something just changed. Now, people say it's maybe Campbell because of, you know, him, his personality, getting them to grow, you know, dig down. Some say a little bit of luck went our way. What, what do you think it was that really started to turn it around? I, I do think it's a lot of confidence and experience in the, with the young players, right? Um, the, the, when you have, Kirby Joseph picking off Aaron Rodgers twice. That's a massive confidence boost. And then in the same game, Aiden Hutchinson is, is also picking him off. Like when your rookies are now starting to produce at high levels, that's, that's you know, you're starting to gain that energy. And then I really do think there's something to the fact of learning how to win, right? If when you, when you kind of find that magic recipe, and and you figure out like, okay, we're close, but we're not figuring out how to finish games out. And then you figure that out and you see, okay, if we do this, it works. And then you do it again and it works and you do it again and it works. Like you, you start, you found the elixir. Right. And, and I think that, that switch kind of happened with um, the younger players. I think the coaching staff got smarter and started learning from some of the mistakes they were making in the first half. And, and then there was also a, a kind of like, this this come to terms moment for the defense where they said, geez, we just cost Aubrey Pleasant his job and we have to really look at ourselves and say, are we doing what, what we can do? And you saw uh, different leaders step up and they were and, and that, that helped them, you know, gain a little bit of success, a little bit of success. And, and then that success just continued to build and and and, and it worked and. Again, I think you bring you brought back uh, like a guy like Isaiah Bugs, who was one of the catalysts of that meeting, and so you you you've got a lot of that core foundation in place that I think helped flip the switch and can keep it going. Around the middle of the season as well, there was that sort of 
watershed moment where we traded Hawk. And I remember at least yeah. personally for me, I had a bit of skepticism because I thought we could have got a bit more for him and it felt we were setting ourselves short. And then obviously we go on that run where we have like the league lead in touchdowns for the tight ends in the red zone. Was uh was that a big moment for you in terms of changing the offense? And then obviously with your mock draft roundup today where we saw we're getting links with Kincaid, we get links with Musgrave as well and all those. Do you think we should maybe invest in another kind of that tight end or do you think we have a type we should stick to that type of the more block first then receive kind of tight ends yeah i think if you can find a balanced tight end that's that's the ideal uh trait that 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 this organization will be looking for and probably what they're missing um if they can find a tight end that can create balance um you know blocking is such a huge part of it but if they can also find a, a tight end that can that can also you know be a a seam stretcher or or a really nice patch patch catcher catcher, uh, that's something that I think they would look to add if they have if that opportunity presents itself. Um, I don't think they're in a position where they're going to need to like reach or where they're like we absolutely have to get another tight end. At the same time, I don't think they would pass up a tight end if it was a, a player who's going to improve the roster. So. The, t- the Hawk thing, um, I think a lot of the trades that we've seen, uh, Hawkinson, even Akuda, those have been around, is this a player that's part of our future? Can we afford what this player gives us and do we want to pay them? And if we can't, then it's then why not try it and deal this player and try and get some capital in return? And so... Hawkinson, it does in the when you look at what they got out of it, it doesn't look like a ton, but at the same time, upgrading a day three pick, which is usually a coin flip, up into a day two pick, which is usually a player that hits, that's that's a Brad Holmes staple. Take a player, increase that, or take a pick, increase that pick's value, and increase the likelihood that you're going to get a player that you can uh, make successful, gives you more draft draft capital to work with. And so I do agree with you when I saw that Hawkinson trade uh, that I was like, well, that's a little light, but he upgraded a pick in each of the, of this year and next year. And I think that's really the, 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 uh, the, was the goal was let's just get a little bit better in better position so that we can be flexible with our draft capital. Just got a quick super chat to get to $4.99 from Steve Shattuck. And actually this encapsulates how I feel about the development of the team, just going back to, to where we were and about NCDC and Brad Holmes. Steve says, I said after the 2021 season that I was confident saying when we win, not if we win. It kind of feels like, like you saying, it's kind of been building in the right way. But for all of the kind of improvements we've been talking about that they've made on, on both the kind of front office side and coaching side, where do you think the, the further room for improvement might be from these guys? What do you want to see in 2023 to kind of iron out things that maybe you still saw from them even in the latter end of 22? Yeah, they still make mistakes. You know, they're, they're, they're not, um, they're not perfect by any means, but um this team as a whole, whether players or, or coaching staff, they tend to make a mistake and then try and adjust to it. And, and sometimes they'll make a mistake a couple of times, but you typically see them finding ways to flex out of it. Uh, one of my biggest gripes from the early part of the season was in 
like uh, fourth and short situations when they would pass the ball, like, and they try and hit like a, a stretch shot, like 27 yards down the field on fourth and one, instead of just taking like a simple fourth and one conversion, keeping the ball, keeping the play alive. And what we saw, we so the twice they, they called those a, a play on like fourth and short where they tried to throw the ball like 20 plus yards down the field. Mm-hmm. And both times they were unsuccessful. And um, what we saw later in the season was uh, the Jets game. I have uh, X, Y, Z, and I hit the, hit the little check down, and then that check down ends up turning into a, a boss to play, and he, and he gets the game winner. And then uh, in Green Bay, you saw it again. This uh, they, they huddle, they rush to the line and spread everybody out to create confusion and then just run, run a couple of, of quick uh, you know, uh, button hooks right in the, in the little zone. And then he had three options that he could have chosen from. And so those little nuances show growth and development and that's really what I think they can continue to do is they still have some mistakes that they that they make. They can still clean those up, uh, whether it's late game decision making or just um, defensive adjustments uh, early, early on in a game, as opposed to just trying to like, this was our game plan. Let's stick to it. Kind of like what we saw in Carolina. They didn't really have an adjustment to move to now, whether it was injury or whatever, but they did. They were late to make those adjustments that. I'd like to see improve because, but they've shown that they can, right? And so I think that's the encouraging part is that there's errors, but there are fixable fixable errors. So up, up to this point, though, after two years, I mean, are you surprised by how quick someone say Holmes and Campbell have flipped this? Because let's say two years ago, we have a roster that is full of expensive veterans and not very good ones. The cap is in a mess. There's very little young talent here and, and yeah. they inherit a hell of a bad situation. And even up to 12 months ago when we were talking to you, it was like, well, year one's kind of happened. It was it was tough. They showed towards the end there's a bit of culture in there and that. But 12 months later on from there, the cap is in a very healthy situation. Holmes is, and Disney, you know, not just be Holmes, but they have done wonders with the cap. We have players who are wanting to stay here, players taking pay cuts. We just miss out on the playoffs after going one and six. Is are you because when this started, we all thought this might be like four or five years, something very long. Are you, are you surprised by how quick this process is going? Yeah, I think the I think in year we were expecting them to be competitive in year three as opposed to competitive at year one and a half, right? Like in that halfway through that second year, when they kind of flipped that switch, there was a massive growth in uh, in, de- in development right, right then that I think we were expecting maybe to happen over a, a, an additional season because of the cap or, or, or whatnot. Um, so, it's almost like they had two seasons last year, right? From a developmental standpoint, they had that first half where they were struggling and working through it. And then they had that second half, which is kind of something I was expecting to see upcoming. And so um, I, I I am encouraged by that. So it, 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 it is early. And so, you know, maybe that should give us a little bit of pause because I think, you know, overall we were kind of expecting that kind of, turning the corner to happen in year three. Um, and it seems like we were, we were already past that. We've already seen them move past that. And so um, it is a little surprising, but at the same time, I think it's, it's, ex- it, it was expected that this was the direction they were heading based on how they were working. Yeah. The, you, you pointed out the fact that their salary cap was in bad shape. They had to shed contracts. They had to do a lot of really bad 
uh, tough decisions that put them in bad spots. They had to try and buy guys uh, in free agency cheap. And they had to gamble on guys. Some worked, some didn't. They rewarded the guys that worked and, and shed the guys that didn't. And so, you know, they, they've basically worked their way through all of them, all of those bad contracts. Like they've fought, they, they cut a ton of them in year one. Um, but this offseason, well, really, like I guess maybe the last six months, right? You've seen the, what, the Hawkinson deal was pending. The Cuda deal was pending. Those are gone. The Vitae deal was looked like a problem for a couple of years. The pay cut that you mentioned. The Romeo deal looked tough. He took the pay. He took a pay cut, right? And so, I think the Lions said, "Look, we're this is we know what we need to do. We this is what we think your value is. Uh, either you were hurt or 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 whatever. Because all all three guys that took pay cuts were all injured, right? And so they the Lions approached them. They're very straightforward with their with their players, and they said you know, this is what we would like to accomplish. This is what we're willing to pay you. And if you're not willing to do that, we'll probably have to move on. And I think it says something about the culture that the players said, okay, we're going to, I'll, I'll take that deal and I'll try and prove it because again, this front office is, uh, has a habit of rewarding players that prove it. And so um, honesty goes a long way with players, right? I mean, that's, it's, it's a, it's a very, very stark contrast to what we saw with the previous regime where they were putting people down and being sneaky and like, you know, not being uh, upright uh, out front and honest with the, with the players, this regime there, they will tell you the way it is, whether you like it or not. And sometimes that's, it's hard. And we saw it on hard knocks, right? We, like in that final episode of hard knocks where they're like, look, you've done everything right, but it's just not enough. And we have to go in a different direction. And that's hard. But the players also appreciate that and 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 they know, you know, okay, this is what they can do moving forward. And so I, I've gone off on a tangent here from your original question. Uh no, no, but, it's it's but, stream uh, of consciousness is a good thing. And actually what you were saying about being brutally honest, it happened even before that in Hard Knocks in the linebacker yeah. room where you saw Shep talking to these guys saying, I'm gonna have to start this bloody rookie if you don't fuck <laughs> up. And I've started yeah. the bloody rookie and how yeah. well he did. So yeah. But, but no, it's very pertinent, pertinent, Eric. Like you're saying, two years ago, guys wouldn't be taking pay cuts. You know, two years yeah, ago, no. free agents like Cam Sutton, they probably wouldn't want to come here for sort of the deals we've got on there. And, and this is everything that they've sort of, they've managed to flip everything in two years, whether it be the cap, you know, the culture, you know, the perception yeah. of everything around here and they're getting it going. So, um, we had we had this discussion a few weeks ago about Holmes and Campbell, and I think we did a selfie's choice between them about which one, if we could only have one of them, we got to the point, but do you think it's a th- with Campbell and Holmes? Do you think this is an absolutely perfect marriage between a GM and a head coach? Because I think if you get rid of either one of them, neither of them does as well as they have to this point so far. Do you think that would be safe to say that these two are actually quite perfect for one another? I, I do think they're perfect because they work out of a similar mindset, and I think that was very purposeful, right? Um, when the hiring team. Uh, was working through candidates. They were looking for a specific type of person that had a specific type of vision, and I and and I think both these two candidates uh, aligned with that. And like they didn't know each other before, but when they meshed together, it was almost effortless, right? And 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 there, it's a very easy relationship. They're both very respectful of one another, 
and, and, and they both have this kind of same direction. This is the type of player that we want. This is the type of character that we want. This is the, this is the, um, we're willing to be flexible with how we're building things, but, and then the ownership behind them is just like, okay, you want to hire, uh, you know, another scout. Good. Here's some money. You want to hire, um, Brandon Sosna, uh, a year ago. And then now he's like your lead contract negotiator. And he's the one that's like facilitate. I know Disner gets a lot of credit, but Sosna is really the magic guy behind, behind all of these contracts. Like, He's 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 the he's the chef, right? I mean, really, like Disner's kind of the 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 rest. If we're going to keep this with this restaurant thing, Disner's kind of like the GM, right? Of, of like the general manager of the restaurant, he kind of oversees everything. But Sosa's really the chef, and or the, you know, like that's or the the purchaser, I guess. He's buying all these ingredients and he's finding the deals and he's getting these fresh ingredients. And then and then Campbell's the one that's in the kitchen making it work. And when you have this symbiotic relationship between them and this direct vision as a as a of an organization, then you get a chance to find uh the type of success that, that they're having. And, and that's why maybe the success comes a little bit earlier. Um I do think they can work independently. Uh and I do think maybe they could find success independently, but I think it's it's a faster road to success when they mesh as well as they do, because there really is, it's almost like the same voice when you talk to them in a lot of ways, because they have the same message, the same direction and the same idea of what they want the team to be and where they want it to go. And that that goes a long way when you have a staff that can unify uh, and have that same vision. It's quite funny, actually, because if you have a look at them and you're saying about how they work, how they're respectful of each other, but they're hugely passionate people, quite loud people, too. You know, you hear their opinions. They're telling you forthright, but they they listen very well, too. And then they bring in at the start of all of this John Dorsey to kind of lead them through it. Another very passionate, very loud guy. But his reputation is one that that doesn't particularly listen as much as others. And he always wanted to get his way. So maybe like having his voice as someone in there, but you don't have to take his word for it. And I mean, I've never come across people as passionate as them who have the ability to actually listen to other people's opinions. So I think they're yeah. rare commodities, really. No, I agree with you. Like Dorsey, Dorsey is, he always, he's always been known as being like a, an instigator. His, his job is to look at the opposite side of what the what the, the group think is and try and create uh, some friction to try and create a different way of looking at things, right? And he kind of did that originally, but at the same time, the the level of respect that he's given makes his job really easy and 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 Holmes really leans on him to to get advice and he takes his advice. Like I mean, if we look back two drafts ago, Holmes was, you know, he was kid in a candy store in his first draft. And he was like, I want this guy, I want this guy, I want this guy. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to, to he's, he's calling on the phone to the other GMs. He's exploring all of his options and he wants to trade up for, uh, for Levi. And, uh, and it's Dorsey that says, all right, take a beat. It's probably going to be there. Let's see how it plays out. And, and, and Holmes listens and sure enough, that you know he ends up getting him at the spot that he probably should have got him instead of like you know trading up to to reach so um it's really it's really an impressive characteristic to be able to be that passionate and still not 
it's it's an important characteristic to be the, the smartest guy in the room and not think have the arrogance that you're the smartest guy in the room right to still be able to listen to others opinions take that and then uh keep moving because i think when it comes to the draft i think holmes is he's just drenched in talent and he just he understands it at a level that like you know it's 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 just a rare commodity and he's that's really where he excels and he's got a staff around him that can help him and and he's willing to listen to them and and that's uh it's it's a it's a rare trait to be able to have that that combination of uh of confidence yet willingness to uh to know to to listen and you know we're, we're talking about all the guys in the room and everything here but obviously there's one person at the top you know where this all comes through and you know ownership for years here has been a, a cause of gripes and that but you know, over the last two years with Sheila Elm, have you seen anything different from her in the terms of how she's running the team? Or is it just a case of she's letting the guys in the know, trusting them, do their work? Or is she getting quite into it as well? Is she quite forward with it all? Or is, is as I say, she's just letting them get on with it? Well, I, I, I think it's a she has a combination of both, right? She wants to be informed. Um, and But she also understands that she's going to let the people that she hired do their job and she's not going to try and micromanage him. Uh, her dad was a micromanager in a lot of ways and uh, he, it, it caused problems and, and he forced uh, some of his business side people into onto the organization to work on the football side. And initially we kind of saw that with the, with like the hiring of Rod Wood is this is a guy who I know from the business side and I'm going to hire him and I'm trust him. And then they quickly realized, okay, maybe Rod doesn't know the football side. And so that's when they went and got a guy like Disner. And they said, look, Disner's the best of both worlds. He can do the football side. He can do the business side. And now they've put him in a better spot and let Rod deal with just the business and, and not really you know worry about some of the football stuff. Then you bring a guy in like Spielman who – basically has no role he can just do whatever he wants and they just give assignments to him like that's something like that like i don't think her dad would have even thought of you know just hiring a, a guy who can just be like a liaison and disseminate information between groups and first a guy have a guy that's as highly respected as spielman and be able to talk him out of a cushy uh you know tv job that he had uh, to come and work for that like that's awesome and uh, and you know, she reorganizes the office. She throws money at like, look, Sosna is not cheap, right? And she, that was a new position that they created that she's pe just paying, right? And you see this with her in other avenues where it's, okay, players are getting injured. Why? It's the turf. Okay, let's replace it a year earlier than we were supposed to because why wait? Like, I don't want the guys getting hurt. So let's, let's, you know, let's replace the turf early. You need another scout in this area? Great. Here's more money for that scout. You need a, a contract facilitator? Great. Here's more money. So she's been throwing money at them. She's not micromanaging. She's staying more informed. And it's just, it's a completely different style of ownership than what her mom or her dad did. Now her mom was much better than dad, but like, but she, but Sheila is, she's got a great mind for it. And she's really uh, I think hitting her stride and she's only going to get better because she's only a couple of really years into this, you know, she's really only three years, you know, into the, the, uh, the full decision-making, you know, capacity. And so 
like everyone else is getting better, she's going to get better at her job as well. And uh, I, I'm I'm excited to see what happens because she is not really holding anything back. And you know, the you've seen departments expand, new ideas, new philosophies. Uh, it's all brought in and it's all brought in on her dime and and she's willing to try and build a winner. And that's, that's great. It's great to have an owner like that. Let's move on to free agency. It coming into it, I'm fairly certain we and everyone else says, Oh, low key, not going to invest too much. Maybe we'll bring back our own guys. That's what they did last time. Not expecting anything too fancy. And I mean, I won't say that we've invested the world, but it certainly feels like we've gone a bit further than than we would have expected at the beginning of this process, Eric. Yeah, certainly. Because, I mean, Holmes even told us that, right? He even said, eh, you know, don't expect much. And then Campbell said, well, we're not going to go after the top guy because, you know, we don't have to go after the top guy. We're not going to we're not going to spend a ton of money. They both they, they both came out and they lied to us. Like, you know, I mean, that's that's really what happened. And so we were all expecting that. Right. And the crazy thing is they've added all these guys. They've reworked all these contracts and they're actually almost at the exact same spot. They started free agency with money wise. And that's because of the restructuring. That's because they've shed a couple of contracts. It's because of the way they designed the, the, the new contracts coming in like it's almost like they didn't have free agency. They just added all these players. And that's like, a, that's why, that's one of the reasons why I'm so high on Sosna because he, his facilitation of the contracts combined with like Disner's vision of like how you want to operate. And then Holmes's, uh, you know, purposeful in, intent with the, with, you know, disseminated money. These are all like important things that, that work together and really are encouraging for, you know, how they can approach a free agency or how they did approach free agency and how they can have put themselves in a spot where they can make decisions moving forward. You go into this draft, you want a quarterback, you have the option to take one. You don't want, you don't end up with a quarterback. Well, you've already made an offer to Teddy Bridgewater and he's just sitting there and you can probably get him. They've got plans on top of backup plans and with, and the money has been utilized so that they can, they can stay fluid and they can stay aggressive and they can keep their hand out. You want to make a trade? You can make a trade. You've got the room for it. You don't have to like, you aren't, you aren't a, a being held captive by the salary cap anymore. And that's what they've done is just really been a, a really beautiful exercise in how to manage the cap because it's really set them up in a much better way than we thought. Uh, and they've added a whole bunch of really good players that we also didn't think they they would get right, and so that's uh, it's been a very nice off season to cover. Do you think that they've seen a window, Eric? Do you think this might explain the change in philosophy with them? Because obviously last year we finished well. You go up to Lambo last week of the year, nothing to play for. They have everything. You go and win, and you look at the state of the NFC North now. The Packers are in flux. The Bears are rebuilding. The Vikings, I think we all agree, were not the 13-win team, really, that they were last year. Do you think Holmes has taken a look at the lay of the land and gone, right, there's an opportunity for us to get to the top of the, you know, to win the NFC North, to move on. and Say the top of the conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You were about to say it. (laughs) 
Yeah, but do you think they've seen a window and do you think this might explain why they've maybe been a little bit more aggressive this time? Because opportunities to get to the top don't always appear, especially with the Packers mm-hmm. and their Hall of Fame quarterbacks around all the time. It may have influenced their free agency decisions. I don't think it influenced their overall philosophy, though, because I think I still believe that they are building this team to be sustainable and to be a sustainable winner for multiple years, because that's how you stay employed. Right. And I think that's their goal. Um, we, we know, we all know they got five and six year contracts, right. Um, uh, Holmes got five Campbell got a six year contract. Uh, and so they had some job stability, but they've really are working this roster so that they can, um, they can keep it, where it's at like if you look at how they're working the offensive line it's beautiful like how they have their contracts spread out they can they can get this offensive line which is the strength of their team which is what they're building everything around they can keep the core together with just a couple of easy moves and and contractually they can make it work it's it's really cool i'm working on an article we can talk about it more if you want to in a bit um but i do think that Maybe they saw this opportunity and they were like, okay, maybe we'll be a little bit more aggressive than we were going to be in free agency. Um, But I think the overarching philosophy of just trying to build a long-term winner, I think that's always going to take take precedence um, over maybe a a window. I get that. Look, I get that question a a lot um, because I think people see it. People see that opportunity in that window opening up. Vikings are probably going to regress. Aaron Rodgers probably isn't going to be a Packer. The Bears are the Bears. And so we are uh, we're looking at an opportunity for a team that's ascending faster than we than we thought. So yeah, why not uh, why not you know add a guy like Char- Chauncey Gardner Johnson uh, when you didn't think he was maybe a guy that you could afford or wasn't in your uh, you know uh, wasn't on your radar or he was on your radar but you didn't think you could get him. Uh, now that you're in a good spot, why not why not go after him because that's that's. He's a, I can take the defense to another level type of player. I think that this free agency has sort of pushed a reputation of Holmes with league wide up. We all, everyone knew he could draft well, but the fact he sort of recognized the opportunity and let for it. So I don't know if you've seen Greg Rovensfall's top 10 list of general managers. Holmes is seven, was he's on it. He's above Gudekunst, Schneider, Jones, all these people have been around. Is the league finally waking up to how good Brad Holmes is overall and not just as like a college scout in the draft? Yeah, and I think, again, a lot of it comes from the fact that he has also surrounded himself with really talented people. Uh, his assistant GM, Ray Agnew, it was from the pro scouting side. And so I think Agnew needs to get a lot of love for what they did in free agency. Um, and I think there's a reason why you've heard his name kind of whispered on the winds uh, as potentially going to be a future GM or at least a candidate for a future GM. Uh, I don't think he got an interview this this year, but he's, you could hear the whispers. Um, I do think it's something that he's going to start getting interviews down the line. And uh, that's, you know, that's he's one of those people that, you know, Holmes has, has surrounded himself with. Now, look, they lost a guy like Dave Sears to to uh arizona right dave sears was the brad holmes of the lions he was their college director and he took an assistant gm job and with the uh with the cardinals but the way that their front office is built is there's it's they're able to 
it's sustainable. Like they can, they can, they can promote from within. They have cross uh, learning between departments. They have uh, other people in place. You talk about, you talk about the, um, the guys like Dorsey and Spielman and all those other guys that are contributing. Like it's, um, it, it's a, it's a huge spider web of uh, smart people and th they feed homes, but Holmes is the orchestrator of that. Like Holmes is Holmes is the uh, Holmes is the uh, you know he's got his orchestra and he's the conductor up there with the sticks and he's the one that's put them all in place and he's making all of them play the music that he wants and then he's presenting this uh, this great musical for us all and so I do think he's getting I, I well the his draft the draft this is bread and butter I think this was definitely an off season where it was like you know it was an eye opener for the rest of the league because. Like you said, the the stuff that they were able to accomplish in free agency still same flu with the with the cap. It was just it's wins uh, across the board for Holmes this offseason. I'm gonna just get on to a little bit of draft and then we'll address a load of the questions that have come in, try and rapid fire them, although I know it's it's not perhaps your strong point with the breakdown <laughs> podcast, but um a coup de trade. Obviously, that happens, and it's a real shame that he's gone. And maybe it wasn't as much as the fans were hoping that we get for him. Does it? Yeah. Do, I know that we're being, and then you wrote an article on this that the Lions are being mocked more often now, a cornerback at six, even more than they were being doing before. Do you think it's made it more likely, or or not? Because there's such strength in depth at the cornerback position in the draft that. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure it does. Aren't the starters kind of here already? And it, is it is it not right to ha perhaps bring on a more developmental guy, which is kind of where they were going anyway? I like I saw Jerry ahead of Jeff at this point. So getting rid of cornerback four is it like does that really impact the draft? I don't know. Yeah, I think based on last season, you, that's a fair assessment to have Jerry ahead of Jeff, uh, which is I think a, a little bit surprising, but in hindsight, it makes a ton of sense. Like at the end of the season. Jeff was Jeff found the bench and Jerry was on the field. And I mean, it, it's pretty black and white right there. Right. So I, yeah, I do think trading away corner outside cornerback four who costs $10 million doesn't really change your overall philosophy, right. Uh, on, on, on need, right. It doesn't make a cornerback any more of a need than it was previously. Um, you do have long-term, potential uh concerns that you have to worry about which makes corner potentially a high uh value pick uh because while you have like Gardner Johnson and Mosley and Jerry all of them are on the last year of their contract right you only have Sutton and Lucas uh are the only two guys that are under contract next year and so when you look at like long term and you say boy if they add a guy like Devin Witherspoon now you have two foundational corners on the outside. And then if you're going to re-sign Garner Johnson, well, now we can keep the this secondary intact, especially with returning the safeties who will now have even more experience. So adding that outside corner or re-signing a couple, you know, some of these guys that are on expiring contracts, those are all ways to um, help maintain the, the level of play in the secondary but I still think corner can be is one of those positions where I could see them taking it at, at six or a hundred and whatever, whatever their last pick is, right? 181, I think it is, right? So um I could see them taking a corner at any of those spots because 
they they do need depth. That is an important facet. And uh, adding a guy at the top just makes your depth stronger, right? Mm-hmm. And that's it's an it's an easy sell. Like if you, if you draft a guy at six, well, he's probably going to be your starter next year. If not, your starter this year. And I, I it's the same thing with the offensive line. They're gonna need a guard next year, whether they re-sign Jonah Jackson or not. And so if you draft an offensive lineman in your top, you know, 50 picks, 55 picks of you with one of those four picks, well, you can help maintain your offensive line stability. And so there's there's something to be said for investing in positions of strength this year, because those positions of strength will help the core foundation stay strong. So, you know, with with the TJ trade, we've seen obviously they've been able to move up their draft picks this year with Jeff. They've traded from the well, you know, they've got more capital in there. We know how Brad likes to work. Brad has his guys and he said he's he sometimes had to be talked out of trading up and down. But given how they're sort of stockpiling here, do you expect to see a lot of movement from him on draft day to try and get his specific guys, especially with the roster as it is now, where, you know, he has a bit more flexibility to do that. Do you expect to see them move quite a bit here if, if they need to? Yeah. I mean, if history, history tells us anything, it's that he will be moving, right? He's, he's moved multiple times in each of the drafts and he has a penchant for saying, this is the guy I want. And he has a great ability to read the value of a player and where that player he is projected to go and then jump in just ahead of where that guy should be picked and then take him, Right. And, he so he gets great value doing that way. So, yeah, adding adding capital helps him stay more fluid. But I I absolutely think it's going to be a I like this guy. He's a difference maker. He can be a pillar of what we want to build on. Let's just go get him right. So like if they move up from eighteen, it wouldn't be surprising to me, right? If they move back from six. I think moving back from six would be more surprising than moving up from 18, just because he's such an aggressive GM that he, if he gets a guy and he thinks, okay, I can add two pillars in this draft, then I'm going to do it. Uh, It's what he did last year. It's why he went and got Jameson. He said, this is a top five player that we're going to get at 12 if we trade up. So why not go get him? So you meant, sorry, Matt, go on. No, no. Actually, no, I, <laughs> I apologize in advance because the guys are probably going to groan because they can guess who this question is going to oh, be. Oh, don't. Everybody. <laughs> Me and you, Eric, share a particular favorite player oh. in the draft. I've tweeted you about him a couple of times. And yeah, you can see Ant's head in the face. At 81, <laughs> do you think the value would be still be there to take a guy like Jamie Robinson, obviously the hybrid defensive back? Or do you think with having Chancey Garner Johnson on the one-year deal and having Will Harris back on the... Uh, vet cat minimum special deal do you think the value's mm. there or should we pivot to something else like a running back like israel abadakanda or a wide receiver like puka nasu one who could maybe have a more instant impact on the team um it, it's a tough question because i do think there is room to add one more player in the secondary uh i think conventional wisdom says if you take the a guy that is an outside corner, it makes a lot of sense, immediate and long term. Um, I think the Gardner Johnson addition really threw a wrench in a guy like Jamie Robinson's chances. Um, same thing with Brian Branch. I'm a big Brian Branch fan, but I think it throws a wrench in the works a little bit. Um, 
you, I, but the fact that Gardner Johnson is only on one year deal, the fact that um, Will Harris is on a one year deal, and and honestly, I don't expect Will Harris to be this like stationary slot guy anymore. I expect him to be this fluid piece that they move all over depending on what they want. I think the idea when they brought Will Harris back was to put him in this role and then bring in a rookie and let that rookie challenge. I think when Gardner Johnson came in, they were like, okay, well, everyone forget everything else. We just added this impressive athlete. Um, And now we have Will Harris who has started at outside corner who's started at safety. Right. And so why not use him as a, Oh, we have an injury at safety. Let's add, let's move Will back there for depth. Oh, we have an, uh, we don't, we lack outside corner depth this week. Let's, let's move Will to the outside. I think I envision Will as being a guy like that. So if, when, if you move Will, there's, you could always use him as a backup to Gardner Johnson, like if Gardner Johnson were to get hurt at the same time, it also, if you're moving Will, it also opens the door to add a guy like a Jamie Robinson who could be that backup, who could be that developmental guy and could just give you a little bit more opportunity to be a little bit more creative with how you utilize your back-end players. It's why I think if they were going to draft a linebacker, it's going to be, in my opinion, it's going to be a linebacker that can cover as opposed to a, like a traditional Mike linebacker, because it's going to be a guy, in my opinion, that they can utilize as kind of like a matchup piece. And so I think Robinson gives you some of that from a secondary standpoint, a guy like Trenton Simpson gives you that like from a linebacker standpoint, which is why I, I kind of think Trenton Simpson makes, could be a guy that is kind of low key on the radar, um, I don't I, I don't I still don't think they value linebacker really high, but I do also think like Simpson is one of these kind of chess piece movement pieces. And and there's a couple of like guys in the secondary, like Jamie Robinson, like Brian Branch, who they don't represent like a clear path to the field. But Aaron Glenn's philosophy is just give me football players and I'll find a way to use them. And and so that's why I think these hybrid players are always still going to be like on the fringe of being in play. And if they think the value is there, they can still go after them at the same time. I love a Banacanda. I think a Banacanda is great. And if you don't take a running back in the, uh, up until that point and like Spears is gone, well, Banacanda is my next guy. Like I, I think he's, I love the upside on him. And so I would probably still take a Banacanda even, uh, even after my whole spiel about getting the those hybrid defensive guys, um, I still think the, a running back is, is is there's real good value at that kind of fifty five to eighty ones range. So you've you've probably been asked this a hundred times already, but you know the Cardinals say six teams have been in touch with them in terms of trading up to three. I know it's been a question put out there that maybe the lines are one of them. Do you do you reckon they are one of the serious guys looking at that and? Do you get the feeling that that maybe could be one of the things that they do is they're going to go up there, whether it be for a quarterback, whether it be for Will Anderson? Do you reckon that's something he would do this year? I I do think he's one of the six that's exploring it because that's just his nature, right? He wants to know what the value is of the picks around him. Um, I don't know if he would do it, though, right? Because I think there's a big difference in cost uh, going up to three as opposed to going up to like 12, right? Um, So I don't know 
where that kind of cost lands, right? Um, if Houston ends up, you know, messing around and, and they end up taking the defender and like, there's a guy like that's one of the top two quarterbacks is there. Well, maybe they take a harder look at them. Maybe, look, they brought CJ Stroud in for a top 30 visit for a reason. And maybe that reason was, I know what it's going to cost to move up with Arizona. If Houston doesn't take Stroud and we, do we like Stroud and do we like the cost to move up to get him? I don't know. Or, or is, is Will Anderson so appealing? Like we brought Willie, you know, we saw them bring Willie Anderson in for a top 30 visit. It's maybe that same scenario. It's okay. We know the cost. We know what, where we value will is will worth the cost to move up and go. So I do think these, like these, the visits that they brought in and the, uh, the, I do expect that they're one of the teams just because that's what Brad does. He, 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 he wants to know all the cards. He wants to see everybody else's cards. He wants to know what they are so that he can make the most informed decision uh, when it, when it comes down to improving the team. So will he do it? I don't think he will. That my gut, my gut is, I don't think he will move. I think the cost is too high. Uh, You look at the trade charts and the cost is only like a second, one of their second round picks. Right. But in reality, it's probably a lot more than that. Um, You know, so I don't know if he'd be willing to start giving up like future high picks and stuff like that in order to move up. If he was able to give up one, a second and a third. Yeah. I think he'd do that, but I think the cost is going to be much higher uh, than that this year. Let me crack on with some of these uh, viewer questions just to get through them. So there's, there's a lot and I don't want to keep you too long because we've been going a while already. Um, Paul on our discord channel asks, how is your home's influence traits list coming (laughs) along? Do you have any idea of specific measurables in specific positions that they like or don't like? Um, it's coming along. Uh, the hard part is the is gaining data, right? Um, so if you don't know, when Quinn was around, I I had this Quinn chart where I uh, identified traits that that they identified for their Patriot system, and they would draft those they draft players based on those traits, and so I tried. I've been trying to organize a similar system where you can identify physical traits uh, that Holmes has uh, a preference towards at, at certain positions. The difficult thing is while Holmes was able to identify things for the Rams, um, you see a lot of the Saints influences and the type of players. So I can't necessarily go back to the Rams like uh, draft history and just use that to add to my, my data pool. Um, I, because it just, it doesn't come straight from there. It's, it's this blend of philosophies. So I'm very limited in, in, in how much data I have and it, and it's not really enough for me to make these like big sweeping proclamations. Um, the only thing that I've kind of seen hold true uh, from an athletic standpoint is with the defensive backs. Uh, when Holmes was in LA, he helped them create a uh, benchmark system for athleticism and defensive backs. It was minimal things for body type. Like he only the player only has to be like 5'10", 180 pounds, which is minimal. Um, but, and they didn't even really care too much about arm length, but what they wanted was they wanted players that could run under four, four, they want and jump 
over 40 uh 40 inches in the vertical and jump over 10 feet in the uh in the broad which in reality it's actually closer to 11 uh based on the the data i've seen so if you can find a guy that's sub 44 can jump over 40 inches and can jump over 11 feet in the broad then you've got a guy that is going to you know fit the athleticism mold well there's three players in this draft that stand out with that um and and one of them is christian gonzalez uh one of them is jeremy banks and that's i guess unsurprising why these are guys that are talked about in the first round uh, with the lions is because from an athleticism standpoint it kind of meets some of these parameters that you look at like and, and when you look at like the uh the lions um like who they've drafted Melifanu, he, he was, uh, he didn't, he wasn't sub four, four, but he was in the four fours and he jumped over 40 and he jumped over 11. And then you look at chase Lucas again, he wasn't under four, four. He was in the four fours, but he jumped. Um, let me get his number. He jumped 39 and he jumped, uh, like 10 and three quarters. So like he's, He's right on that kind of fringe. So if you start oh, for a round seven these, guy, they're willing to accept. Yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. They, you're right, exactly. And um, so when you so like Gonzalez, Banks, they fit the mold that was created that Holmes helped create in LA. So you would think these two guys fit at the same time. Aaron Glenn uses a ton of Saints philosophies. In, in order to uh, identify players that work in his scheme, which is why you have guys like Devin Witherspoon in the conversation, because he fits stylistically with that, which is why Brian Branch is in this conversation, because he has a lot of uh, Garner Johnson type things, right? And so it's a hard blend uh, trying to find this system. And so I don't have it finalized yet, but I there are little things that kind of uh, jump out. The one sleeper, uh, that I would say to keep an eye on that kind of fits the system if they don't end up taking like a corner early is uh, another Maryland corner, uh, Jacorian Bennett. He also fits this profile. Uh, he is a guy who I thought was is very fluid of an athlete. You can see that the measurables match uh, what he what he puts out there. Um, and he's a guy that most people are looking at kind of like on day three. Uh, even if it's maybe in the early parts of day three, maybe he sneaks in the back end around of, of round three. Uh, but Jacorian Bennett is a guy I think people need to keep on their radar if the lines don't go corner early. He so, looked super impressive in the in the combine, generally in the drills as well. I was really impressed. Yeah, I'm sorry, really sorry. smooth. No, sorry. So just kind of maybe to tack on to that hitless question just a bit. They talk about wanting guys who love football, you know, they've, yeah. they've got to lift it and breathe it. And they said after the combine, there were only a few guys who kind of ticked all the boxes there. Is is there a way that you have to try and kind of figure out who those guys are? Or is that just a complete mystery as to as to what they actually mean by it? it could be such a broad spectrum thing. The love of football could mean a hundred different things. Yeah, it's a mystery. Yeah, there's nothing I can do really do, unfortunately. <laughs> and that's, that's one of the key catalysts, right? Um, you know, I think a lot of those things that they come up with are based on interview processes and that's just stuff that we don't have access to. And I wish, I wish we had the access that they do. Um, you know, at the, at the combine uh, Campbell said they talked to like 35 guys or something like that at the time. And like six of them, I think it was six that he said like stood out 
as guys so that he you know could tell immediately and so all of us immediately went to our lists of who have they talked to and who could it be that's kind of where jamie robinson popped into the conversation because jamie robinson is very much a football guy who loves football um and he met with them at the combine and so um I think a guy like uh, Sam Laporta came, he got brought up then too. another guy who likes football at a position where they, at, where they might take a tight end, like in, in round two or something like that. And so um, those were kind of like early, you know, speculative, you know, guesses, but at the same time, we only know like 10 or so players that, that they met with at the combine. And in reality, they met with like 40, right. Or 45, I think is what they get. So we really don't even know, a, you know, we only know maybe a, we don't even know a third of who they met with. So I don't know. I don't know who it could be. Maybe it's Trenton Simpson. They met with him at the combine. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it, it's, it's really, un, and un, unfortunately we just don't have uh, that kind of access. And unfortunately it's one of the biggest key components uh, in decision-making for this regime. I'm going to move on to some of the more of the questions that we've had. Carlton on our Discord asked, who have been your worst picks or crushes in previous drafts and why and what have you kind of learned in your evaluation process along the way? Which I think is a really interesting non-draft question. I was at previous draft question as opposed to 2023. My worst um, was when I first started. Uh, this was probably, geez like 15 years ago, um, there was a player at Michigan named Ernest Shazor. I uh, was a safety. He, uh, he was a big hitter. Uh, he had all the traits you would look for. Uh, he kind of like, um, he had like these, like he had a knack for making big plays. He had, he was coming off a season where he made some really big plays. Uh, he declared as a junior. And I was like, Man, everything says this guy is going to be a high pick. I had him, it's like a top 50. I had him going. I'm like, he's a second rounder. I'd love to see him go. And then uh, he went undrafted. And so I was like, I have no idea like what I did wrong. But like, I think what uh, the, the learning lesson for me there was uh, as a Michigan graduate, I was like, maybe I'm, you know, looking at him with rose colored glasses and and maybe I'm looking at this player that I enjoyed watching as a fan um and saying you know maybe he's not as he, he I what did I miss in his projection because um I was way off way off on him and so I tend to be a little bit harder I think on Michigan players now um <laughs> which is the same <laughs> yeah uh <laughs> And, and I think that probably stems from that miss. And there's plenty of like misses. You know, we we all have them. Um, I think quarterbacks one of the hardest ones. I, I tend to, uh, I tend to think I have a good beat on some quarterbacks, and, and and they're just so hard. I mean, but I mean, me and every other NFL GM out there, right? Um, but yeah, I think Shazor was the one that really was my okay. I'm doing something wrong because this okay to tell you what this was the same draft where Aaron Rodgers was in. So that's how long ago it was, right? I actually correctly picked where Aaron Rodgers would go. When he didn't get picked at one, I said, he's going to go right here. Somebody's going to jump the Bears and, and take him. And that's Green Bay did that. They jumped the Bears and they took him. And so, like, I really felt as confident as I as I ever had. And then I just watched Shazor just stay at the top of my board for the next, like, 
18 hours or whatever it was over that. Like, and so like, it was a, it was a very quick kick in the butt reality check. Um, because I had to really like, look at what am I, what was I missing? Uh, and I, I do think I am a lot harder on Michigan players now and people don't believe me, but I, I tend to be. Talking on that point, we've got a, a, a well a comment from someone called Jeremy Reisman. I think you've heard of him. Um, <laughs> says Eric has never said anything good about a University of Michigan prospect since. <laughs> <laughs> I love touch. I love touch. I mean, like, and I got called a homer for that one. But like, I want, but. I thought Hutch was a first rounder. I think we talked about this last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought Hutch was a first rounder and if he would have came out in 2021. And I think he might have been the first edge taken in 2021. Uh, and then he went back to school. And and so I was like, when he, by the, the next year, I was like, he was already way up at the top of my board. I think I had him like, like as a top 15 player in 2021. I was way high on him. And I really didn't want to be because, again, I I turned <laughs> nice um, <laughs> so i uh but that's one of the reasons why i was so high on hutchinson last year was because he had already been a guy that i was like super fond of and so michigan school or not i didn't care i i was i was i was kind of all in on him right from the jump uh even you know from 2021 i was i was sold on him sorry for that interjection there i i had to get in that in there for jeremy he's gonna suffer if we beat them in football or if beat you if you're gonna partake in that as well just on the side as, as he told you about our our wagering that we'll beat you in some like pick up football when we come over next no. oh gosh <laughs> i assume you will you all look in better shape than us oh. um we can we got a good punter on staff uh so we we need to have Hobbs and just kick the ball you know forever but yeah I'm I'm way past my athleticism days. Well, yeah, you and me both. Um, <laughs> uh, let's get some more questions. Brandon Kerr has a really interesting question from from the YouTube chat, and he says, uh, "We've been talking about offensive line, trying to reinvest for the future in that position, but kind of the starter seems set right now. Are there any kind of potential day three candidates at offensive line because we're so seemingly so good at training some of these guys up and you know mm-hmm. potentially the best offensive line coach in the league as a home where i'm going to say so anyway you know maybe we can develop some of these guys and not have to take one high so is there anyone in your radar with with maybe that new fifth round pick that we have um it, it's it's hard to like it, it, if you base uh if you base my if you base your prediction on what other people are saying about prospects then yes i have some guys that like people are kind of low on um one of my favorite sleeper picks is a guy named anthony bradford from lsu um he's actually from michigan um he played at uh, muskegon and he uh is a right guard who excels in the gap scheme he's a gap power guy He's got great movement skills. I believe his Raz was the highest amongst the interior offensive linemen. Oh, wow. Um, he had a 9.8, I think is what it was, or 9.81, something like that. And uh, Bradford is, you can if you didn't catch him at the combine, he's an easy mover. Uh, really, He can pull. He's got lots of power. He's like 6'4", 330. Uh, he's a guy who, like I think, like I said, a lot of people are kind of low on. My guess is the NFL isn't as low on him, or maybe it's just me not being as low on him. Um, I think he's, if you took him at 81, I'd probably be fine with it. Like that's how highly I think of him. Um, if you can get him 
at in the in the in the fifth round, all the better, right? Because there's there's I think the draft network has him as a fifth. I think PFF has him as a as a sixth. I think NFL has him as a fourth. So like, and I think Brugler has him as like a, a fourth as well. Um, so, but he's a guy that I think is kind of under the radar. That would be you draft him now and, you, and he could start for you a year from now. If you don't end up taking like alignment early, he's a guy that I like a lot um, as a reserve. Um, he's yeah, 144 on the names. consensus board that I've built in the, okay. between the five. So like kind of that puts him in early, early I, day three range, I guess. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think he's, I can he could be a top 100 guy. Like that's, I think that's his level. And, and maybe he's not a guy who wins a starting job, this year against like Vitae or, or Graham, but he's, there's enough potential and athleticism and power and gap understanding of the gap scheme that I think uh, Hank Fraley could turn him into a starter in, in just a year. Um, Another question from the Twitch chat, awkward Yeti 40 asks, or there's a statement and then a question. Seems like Brad has identified an injured player in the last two years to grab the value as they fall in Levi and Jamo. Are there any yeah. injured players this year that would be a steal in round two that is falling due to injury? Mm. I, I have Voorhees in my head, but I think he'll be like a, a round five, round six pick and just redshirt him for a year. But is there anyone maybe a bit higher up? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if I've really looked at uh, injuries <laughs> as a catalyst to draft someone for value, but it's an interesting way of, of looking at it. I'm going to roll through my kind of chart real fast. Ash, um, have you got on the tip of your tongue? He's crossing yeah, he's, his fingers he's, for he's Garrett. He's got somebody. Yeah, Garrett Williams. I, I, I knew it. He was crossing his fingers for Garrett. Garrett Williams, the uh, Syracuse cornerback. I'm a bit mm, that's a good shout. Didn't they just bring him in too? Yeah, I think... Twitter, yeah. I, I linked you the the tweet about him, uh, his top thirty visit. There you go. He for me coming into this year before the ACL was a first round corner, and then obviously he tore his ACL week four, I think. And I know he played mostly in the zone scheme with Syracuse, but he just has the characteristics to play uh, off man for us. So I think he'd be perfect fit to sort of groom and then bring in next year when Mosley and Co are gone. He was a guy who was on my radar. Uh, ahead of the season and I think I actually had him on a watch list and then I think I think I had him on a watch list like the week after like I didn't realize he tore his ACL and I because I remember I remember getting called out for that um that I was that someone was like yeah hey, he's hurt and I was like all right um but yeah he was a guy I know I know the PFF guys really like him I think they have him as like uh a day two guy I think draft network has him as like a day two guy um so yeah i think he's a he could be a guy he could be, i mean maybe he could maybe he's that guy um i I've, I've been scanning my list i don't have a great answer um uh, unfortunately so maybe uh maybe maybe ash just answered it for us there you go this a little quick pivot there. We're talking about Syracuse corners. Well, we have one yep. on the roster at the minute. Or, we do. Well, he's not a corner anymore. But is with if he is there still a future for him? I I think the move. I didn't like the move to safety. I think he's better yep. on the outside. Do you think they try him back outside again, or do you think they're just going to 
carry on hammering away at safety, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I think they're going to keep him at safety. Um, I think if they were going to switch him back, they probably would have done it in season uh, last year because there was a need. Um, it would have been easy to try and get him back to his roots uh, and then try and get him on the field. Uh, but the fact that they stayed the course, they kept pushing him at safety. Then they even started him at safety at one uh, for a game, what, two games? Or man, I'm not sure if he started that second one, but he played a couple. Um, I do think that he's probably uh, going to stay there. And in, in my mind, he's also a guy who could develop into the hybrid Garner Johnson type role where he can be your slot matchup guy who can be physical. Uh, but the thing that really appealed to them most was how good he was in off coverage. And that off coverage really translates to safety, I think. And so um, my guess is he sticks there. All right. Couple more. I'm going to stretch it just a little bit. Hope, hope you have a little bit more time. I got it. We're good. Sure. Okay. Um, I'll ask that one. Uh, Frog Crop has a just a conceptual question about next year's defense, given the uh, investment we've had and what might happen in the draft. Uh, Frog Crop on YouTube asks, fellas, is it possible that Detroit can have a top 12 to 15 defense next year? I think that's in the realm. Op- I think it's optimistic. I think it's in the realm. Um, but it's well, one, because we haven't seen they're not done building it. Right. They're not done building the defense. And, and they it, if they take de- two defenders in the first round. Yeah, then that's going to increase the potential of where they can go. Um, my hope is that they can get to about 20, right? Because at the end of last season, they were operating, like if you only look at like the, those last cluster of games and you look at how they were operating in those last cluster of games compared to the rest of the league, they were operating as like a mid-tier defense. And when you have a, defense that's even operating mid-tier and then a top five offense, you can win games. You can get to the playoffs. Like those are things that you can do. So if they can get to 20, great. You've set the team up to success. If they can get to 15, oh well, now expectations are going to get really high for me. So I'm trying to set my bar a little lower. Uh and and I'm I'm targeting top 20. And, and we'll see if they go better then that's a cherry on top for me. All right. Um, Lost Phobia in our Discord chat asks, what two guys do you want in the draft? Any round, any player, doesn't have to be high. In fact, if it isn't high, maybe we'll get we'll shine some light on some people who don't get talked about too much. So maybe non-first round picks, two guys that you'd just love to have here. It's hard because you fall in love with a lot of guys, right? Because you start to find guys like it. Like if you said, like if you picked a position, I could tell you a lot easier than just looking at it as as a collection, right? Um, but let me let me think, let me think. Okay, um, so who's who's your pick of the tight end group then that maybe isn't around one tight end? Well, I don't think Darnell Washington goes in round one. I think he's on that fringe, right? I think people are going to look at a Kincaid, and they they might. I think Kincaid could be one, maybe the first guy off because he's arguably the best pass catcher. Pass catchers tend to go earlier, right? Um, Mayer's a little bit more balanced, uh, whereas Washington, I still think he could sneak into that. But if he doesn't, I think Washington is the best fit. 
Uh, but if you're talking about like guys that aren't in that top like seven, because those top seven guys, I think, well, top six, I think are all kind of guys that could maybe are flirting with round one. Um, but if you get past him, uh, Davis Allen from Clemson is an interesting guy. Uh, he's a guy who's going to be in that kind of fringe uh, late day three, early day four. Uh, maybe you get him in the fifth. Uh, he's a good blocker, good run blocker, good pass catcher. He can be a red zone target. He's um, he's he's an interesting guy at tight end. All right. Uh, you want to know? Oh, it's just no, tight no, end? All right. No. Well, no, no. no. I, you have another one. I'm, I'm happy. Let me think. Let me just let me think for a second. I know I'm kind of dragging you on here. No, no, no. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to go on forever here, but I just got you through. <laughs> so I know there's a lot of love for someone like Desjuan Johnson from Toledo, um, although he might be a really late guy. Someone in the chat, uh, in uh, Detroit versus everybody in the YouTube chat, just said, Has Eric talked about a certain USC edge defender yet? So do you have some love for Tui Pelotu? Uh, I don't have oh. a lot. Um, I, I he's 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 not a guy that I'm like, you know, all rah rah for. I could see the fit. I kind of see him though in the same mold as like your Josh Pascal and your Don Kaminsky. And so I don't know if there's a path to the field as uh, as easy for him mm. uh, as if you have a, a an edge player who has a little bit more uh, versatility. Um. It's, it's hard with the edge guys, you know, like a couple of the guys at the very top are very fun. And then after that, it becomes, well, are we going to, are you looking at a guy who's just going to be like a situational pass rusher in year one? Or are you looking for a hybrid guy who can, who's kind of in the James Houston mold, who can be a, um, who can be more of a, uh, special teams contributor as, as well as maybe a situational pass rusher uh, a guy so for that like Yasir Abdullah from Louisville uh, he is in a lot of ways like James Houston so I'm going to pause this thought for to, to kind of bring something in and I'll make it I'll make it connected I promise um, last year they used six off the ball linebackers on a on a game day basis three of them played defense Three of them played special teams. What they discovered late in the season was that there is an opportunity for them to utilize James Houston more. And to do that, they operated in, in, in like a 5-2 front against the Bears. So to shut down these run defenses and these mobile quarterbacks, they had tried just their base and their base wasn't cutting it. So when they added the James Houston role and they went to more of like a 5-2 look, it helped them contain the mobile quarterback in a more efficient way. They actually didn't go to it to like the second quarter, which is when you started to see fields shut down a little bit more. Um, so I think they may lean into this five, two and may want to add a little bit more depth. Now you have Julian Aquara, but if you want to add another late round edge rusher, a guy like Yasir Abdullah would fit that mold. And you can take away one of those off the ball linebacker guys who was only playing special teams. And why not just make that and why not make that guy just an edge guy instead? Like they're, they all fit into that same range. So now instead of having six off the ball guys, now you have five and then you have the, you have an extra hybrid guy because I think there's more value in adding these hybrid guys. So if I'm adding an edge rusher late, that's the type of guy that I'm going to be looking for the Yasir Abdullah hybrid uh, linebacker slash edge rusher guys. So that's what I'd be paying attention to. 
So would, 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 you, would, you, would you go for some of the higher versions of that, say, Drew Sanders? He would be the one who would fit that. And, you know, he's he's got so much growth to do still. You're not even seeing the best yeah. of him, and he's still one of the best. Do you reckon that might be another way as well, if they're going to sort it I, in that room? I, I, think, I think Drew was moved off the ball because that's probably where his future is. Um, in a lot of ways, like Derek Barnes was moved off the ball, and he stayed there in the NFL. And a lot, and like uh, Tremaine Edmonds, uh, when he was at Vatek, he wasn't. He was that kind of hybrid edge rusher guy. And when they moved him off the ball, and they kept him off the ball uh, in, in Buffalo. And so I think Sanders is going to be more in that mold. I don't think he's as dynamic a player as like a Micah Parsons, who can kind of be this like legit hybrid type guy. Um, I, I get the appeal and maybe he will develop into that. And that's definitely becoming something that's more trending uh, in the NFL. I'm just not buying into Sanders in that way. Um, and if you're spending an early pick, then you're going to be trying to force him on the field a little bit more, which then cuts into your value of having James Houston, which is why I'm, I'm more inclined to lean with a developmental type player that can add you more depth as opposed to a guy you're going to spend a pick and then try and find a way to work him onto the field. A couple of comments from the chat. One from Polar Knights, which made me laugh out loud, out of context, but he said, I love the show. It is the perfect evolution of beard growth. Apologies if you're oh, on the audio pod, but around <laughs> as absolutely excellent. Um, <laughs> J- Jeremy saying that Eric's looking to unemploy Anthony Pittman, which I think is unfair, but I see where you're going with it. Dan Pask asking about Tyree Wilson and whether he's high on pass rush win weight, considering Hutch and Houston being one and two last year in the rookies. I'm looking at PFF now. He improved on to a 80 grade in their pass rush success grade or whatever that is which isn't quite espn's pass rush win rate metric but Mm -hmm. it it's got to be somewhat linked so he's quite high on that aspect um anyway uh, i've got i've I've got a really nice fluffy question to finish but i've got a couple more left to do um i'll go if you're looking yeah you go um okay so this is sort of moving more towards the future now eric but you know brad holmes the whole point of the growth here draft their players pay their players, that's how they're going to build the team. It's been a long time since we've seen a really big deal handed out to players, given the situation with bidding. Obviously, the first pressure point may come next year with a guy who's not theirs, but we mentioned Jonah Jackson earlier, the ability, whether he's going to get paid, whether he's here or not. I know he's not one of theirs, but he strikes me as been the guy they probably would have gone for. Anyhow, if he has another good year, we've just seen a guy like Chris Lindstrom get absolutely you know, a, a bucket from the Falcons for buying that position. If he has another good year, do you really expect them to have a run at trying to keep him here? Because people say, mm-hmm. God, it's not expensive. Mm-hmm. Because obviously if you're drafting guys for the future, you, you've got to pay them as well to show them that at the end of it, they're going to be a part of the future here. Do, do you expect them to really have a go at him, even if he has quite a hefty price tag? I do. And I think I'm a little bit in the minority on that because I know there's other like beat writers that don't think he's going to get paid. But I think there's a path. Right. Um, He makes a lot of sense to retain. He is a pro bowler. Right. He's got that pro bowl under his belt. He's got that movement. He's got that nasty demeanor that they kind of like on the field. But he's a real good guy off. He gets along with everybody. and, And there's there's, I think, a path to do it. I don't think he's going to get 
like Lindstrom type money. Uh, but I think he's going to get a, he would, he's in line for a significant raise. Um, if you look at how the offensive line is laid out, all of their starters have expiring contracts in different years. Okay. So it's kind of like this tiered out system. Uh, right now, let's say the Lions took uh, a rookie uh, at 18th. Okay, we'll just give you a high price tag on on a rookie, and they took that rookie, and uh, his job, his goal is to be right guard of the future. All right, if you factor in his contract plus the contracts that they have for the contributing offensive linemen, they're going to cost around fifty six million dollars, which is around twenty five percent of the cap. And so, in order to keep the offensive line a strength. You can spend you you can allocate about twenty. You should be allocating about twenty five percent of your cap towards it. Now next year, you're going to have Vitae, Jackson, Glasgow all come off the books. Okay, Frank Ragnow's contract actually dips. He uh, he's he's going to make four million dollars less next year than he is this year. Um, and if you have a rookie who, who's who's also lowering the cost in at right guard, well. You've got room to add Jonah Jackson because the cost of Decker, Sewell, Ragnow, and a rookie who you took even in the first round is only going to cost you around 20% of the cap. So you could still allocate about 5% of the cap to Jonah. Now, the way they backload contracts as well, he's not going to cost the 5% of the cap. He's not going to cost $10 million or whatever, right? So like you, you have that flexibility to re-sign him with this backloaded deal, and then you have these other staggered contracts that can allow you to address the following year. So the following year, Taylor Decker's contract is up. But again, if you have Frank Ragnow, pick 18, and Sewell, even though he's he's going to probably be on his fifth-year option, which is going to be like $18 million, and even if you have Jonah at 10%, well, guess what? they're still at around 20% of that projected cap. So they could then, re if they wanted to make a decision on Decker, they could because they're still going to have that like 5% to play with. And it keeps going like that. The following year, Sewell's contract is up. But guess what? All the other contracts are in reasonable spots and they're going to be at around 20% and they're going to have about 5% of the cap to spend on the next guy that comes up. So when you look at how this is tiered and how they're spread out, they can absolutely re-sign Jonah. They can re-sign Taylor in two years. They can keep this offensive line intact for a half decade or more because of how the contracts are laid out. And, and you can keep a strength to strength. The, one of the keys, though, is you got to get a rookie that hits on the offensive line this draft because you need that rookie, that rookie contract to help you facilitate all these other bigger contracts that are due. And if you have that, it can be a first rounder. It doesn't matter. But you have, if you find that rookie this year that hits, that can be your staple at right guard, gold. The whole offensive line, you can, you can manage that offensive line for a decade. But you got to hit. You got to hit them this year. It's a big priority for me. Uh, Junie asked in our Discord, how many UDFAs do you expect the Lions might sign this year? And is there any guys you expect to be UDFAs that might be priorities for you? I know that this is kind of like a question for frantically looking at Saturday afternoon, evening time. Sure. But any any kind of projected priority well, guys? 
So they have 69 guys under contract right now. They have eight draft picks, which will put them at 77 players. Nine if they now. keep oh, I'm sorry, nine now. Nine now. So that will keep them at 78 players. So that would give them 12 open spots if they wanted to sign UDFAs. Last year they signed 12. The year before they signed 13. So they could add 10 line uh 10 UDFAs uh and then still have maybe a, a spot or two for a guy like Teddy Bridgewater if they need him or maybe another veteran if, if they need him for a different spot. So they can sign anywhere from 10 to 12 guys. If Brad Holmes trades and he has comes out with less than nine drafted rookies, then you know it gives them a little bit more freedom to even add even more UDFAs if they need to. So um the tough part about picking UDFAs is that most of the guys that I think are good, I think are draftable. And then if they don't get drafted, then I'm like, that's the good UDFA they need to go after, right? So it's hard to kind of project which guys are going to be UDFAs Mm. when we have like 250 picks before, right? Like it's just, it's (laughs) hard for me to to pick that guy out. So I can answer the first part of that question, but I don't think I can answer that last part. No, that's fair. Um, Grandizer asks... Have you heard any heard of any legit trade offers down from six? And like, is there any sort of what would it take for you to to trade down from six to eleven? Say with Tennessee, it's always the one that seems to be mentioned mm-hmm. as somebody wants to come up. I kind of think they're in play for three personally, but if they can't get there, maybe it's an option for them. I don't know. I I haven't heard of anything um, like uh, specifically. Right? Um, I know Brad's uh, surely on the phone you know, calling people around and looking for it. But my general philosophy is if you are in the tier, if you are picking in the tier of where there are blue chip players, then you take that blue chip player, right? And if you're going to move out of that blue chip player range, you're asking for a first round pick next year. That's my general rule, right? So if Tennessee is trying to trade up from 11, and you're going to trade back and you believe that that is out of the range of the blue t- blue chip you're asking for a high you're asking for a first rounder that and that's my general philosophy on on, on trading back when you're picking in this range so if there's a blue chip player there, take him if not maximize that value makes so, total so- sense like most people would think about the distance that you're traveling when it comes to trade value but it's not. It's it's how the value of the pick changes, which is how good the draft is and how valuable yeah. those players are at those picks. So that makes total sense. Sorry, Ant. No, so I was about to say, so if there's a, a certain blue chip running back there at six, would you really, <laughs> really upset your colleague and, and, and say that they'll take him? Because I know Jeremy would. We, we'd hear him from over here. I think the trick is... There are certain positions that get put in separate boxes. Uh, For example, with me, I have my draft board and then I have my quarterback board. And I think because they're they're separate in my mind. I can't determine the value between quarterback five and like edge two. You know what I mean? Like it's it's like uh, edge two is going to be higher, but like how much higher because quarterback, if you need a quarterback, then you need a quarterback and that's a completely separate board for me. Um, I, I don't, it's hard to blend them together. Um, and I do think when you're talking about running back, it's one of those positions where you, the positional value 
drives the stock of that player down. While the player may be elite, the value of the position drives the overall grade down. I think it's true with linebacker. I think it's true with running back. And so you may be staring at this elite talent, but if he's at a position that is not as uh, you know big of a priority, it's going to drive the value of that player down. And, and that's why I think while Bijan is probably a blue chip player, I don't necessarily think he's a blue chip draft pick. Big Aries in the Twitch chat says, is there a move in the first round that you don't want to see the Lions make? Um, Which I think is an interesting question. It doesn't get asked enough. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the thing is, is with Brad Holmes, he's done so well. He's almost earned the trust that you're like, I don't like it, but I, I get it. I I understand it. Um like, for example, if he took Bijan, I would be like, I would say, man, maybe you're not maximizing maximizing your draft capital, but boy, he's a great player and he's fun and I'm happy to have him on the team. You know what I mean? Like, so like you could justify uh, adding an extremely talented player, even if you're not, ma- and if your only quibbles is with Bijan, it's just going to be maximizing draft capital. So um, if we're talking about adding a position or uh in the first round that i there's a couple of them like tight end is a deep class i don't think you need to use a first rounder on one for the Lions situation and how they value it um i think there's a really good defensive tackle at the top of the class and jalen carter and then i'd probably wait because i don't know if there's a, another defensive tackle that i would take at 18 um again in my opinion um there i don't know if there's a wide receiver in this class that I would take at 18. Um, I would understand it, but I'm not super high on this wide receiver group. Uh, I think there's a lot of talent in that kind of middle, which is really where I think the defensive tackle talent is. And I think where the running back talent is that kind of sweet spot in between like pick 48 and pick 81. There's some really good offensive skill players. There's some really good defensive linemen. And I think that's kind of where I see the value of, of those positions. So um, I think, yeah, so like if, if they took Kansi at 18, I probably wouldn't be overly excited, but I would understand it, right? Um, if they took, like I said, Bijan, if they took, uh, if they took uh, Washington, if they took Darnell Washington and they, or, you know, let's say if they traded back and took him, you know, I mean, that's fine too. Like I just, I don't love the value at a couple of those spots. And that, that's where I, I would kind of push back at those spots. Three more questions. And then if any of the guys have anything to finish, then then cool. But three more viewer questions. I've stopped taking any more. I'm sorry, guys, but we're not going to get to them all. <laughs> Dan Pass had to get one in despite being at the baseball. Come on, man. Um, <laughs> says, which tight end reminds you of Josh Hill in this draft? Or is that Brock Wright? Um... So the thing with Hill was that he was an H back, uh, right? So like he he could do that blocking tight end plus that H back. And while I don't think it's a perfect comp, um, 
I do think a guy like Josh Wiley from Cincinnati is a blocking tight end who has some H back range, but he's probably more of a tight end. Um, it's got some athleticism and uh, I think he's got some H back skills in him. There's a couple other guys like that. I'm just not, I don't like them as much as I like Wiley. Uh, a question about Ed Oliver. Quite a few people asked it. Robo35 on YouTube. Eric, do you think we land him on draft day? I mean, I, I'd like it. I, I, I bet I've, I've said, I just said it, right? Like it, after Jalen Carter, I'm not in love with the draft class until the second round. And so I like these guys, a lot of these guys in the second round. But if the going cost for Ed Oliver is a second rounder, which it's which has been floated out there, I'm okay taking that. I, I would rather have the proven commodity uh, at defensive tackle. And so I would I would enjoy, I would be willing to give up a second rounder for Ed Oliver. I know he has a big contract. I know you're probably going to have to pay him. That's fine. I like what he is. I like what he can do. Um, I was a big Ed Oliver fan when, you know, when he was at Houston, right? So like, uh, I'm kind of a sucker for him and, uh, I'd be, I'd be on board with trying to acquire him. The locked on bills guy from the draft network or former draft network guy, um, thinks Ed Oliver will get about 13 or 14 mil APY, which I think is maybe a little light compared to what we think he might get, but you know, I can go for that. Um, and <laughs> No, as I say, Eric, who do you out of this draft? Who who do you not want to see in division? Whether it be a fit with another team, I, we all have that one guy that we love so much. But who do you not want to see in the division come the end of the draft? Yeah, I, I think your top defenders are guys that you want to avoid. You don't want to see Will Anderson. You don't want to see Jalen Carter. Um, you're hoping either you land them or they go uh, somewhere in the AFC. Um, you know, maybe, you know, Seattle will take one of them and you'll have to deal with them, one of them, but it's, that's few and far between when you play Seattle. Right. Uh, so yeah, those, those are the two guys I think that just immediately stand out there. Um, or a player that you really love who you just don't want to see rocking the, yeah, you know, it happens, it happens inevitably. My favorite back, um, four or five drafts ago was Aaron Jones. And then he went, to, I mean, I had, I, I had DMS with him. I had set up a, a, an interview. He still follows me on Twitter. Uh, absolutely hate that. He went to the Packers hate it with a passion. Um, so yeah, I, and inevitably a guy that I like will go in or in, in within the division. It ha- seems to happen every year. Um, I don't. I mean. <laughs> Jeremy just said Witherspoon to Chicago, which is just a whole oh, manner of horrible. <laughs> this is this is why people don't like Jeremy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right, I've got a fluffy question to finish why off even the, put the viewer questions, and then if the guys have anything else to finish off, then then go ahead. Phil Coop on our WhatsApp group says, "Eric Schlitt, you are a bona fide first round draft pick." You are in the waiting room. You're in the green room on draft day, Thursday night. Do you own an outlandish outfit enough to (laughs) attend in? And what is it? Oh, right now? Absolutely not. No, no. What would you Absolutely not. Um, 
Jeez. Um, I, I, I don't have anything outlandish anymore. I am, I am an, an old man, uh, and I have settled into my ways. Uh, this t-shirt that I'm wearing, I have, I think 12 different colors of it and it's just the same t-shirt and I wear it every day. Uh, it's just wear a different one, just change into a new one. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. I I'm, I'm so based in comfort and, uh, and simplicity that I really don't have anything outlandish. Um, if I were to go outlandish, geez. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy said you're wearing please. almost that outlandish outfits. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have shorts on right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't, geez. I don't know if I could pull anything off. I, I, I definitely know I couldn't pull it off now. When in my younger days, maybe I would have tried something a little bit uh, fun, like the guys at the draft are. You know, the young guys—they try some fun stuff. But, geez, yeah, no. There's, I, I, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm not just a little bit past being stylish. I'm like a decade or two past being stylish. So uh, I have nothing. I have nothing. This is it. All right, guys. Any last questions to finish up? I've got one that I've just thought of. You're a great, uh, Eric. You're a great football mind. Let's say Dan recognizes that and comes up to you, a press uh, like aside after a press conference, is like, Eric, what is one thing that you think we should change? It can be as macro as we need to run more two running back sets on offense, or it can be as micro as the uh, the leverage that cornerbacks use, so they use the sideliners to defend them more. What is that one thing you would tell Dan to change? Yeah, I, I do think there's mismatch options on offense that I would absolutely love. Um, they don't run the Texas route enough. Uh, with Swift, it, it's lethal. Uh, it's it's almost uncoverable, and they only ran it a couple of uh, they only ran it a couple of times last year. Um, I would love to see more of that. More get my athletes in space and matchups like because. There's not a linebacker in the NFL that can really hang with Swift on that route. And it's almost a guaranteed six yards, like every time, if not more. So I would I would be employing the give me some two RB sets and run Swift on on, on an angle and uh and let and just give me give me options. And any last questions? No, I, I think I've gone through just about everything. All right. Eric, anything that you want to talk about with upcoming articles? You mentioned, you referenced one thing that might be coming up article-wise. Um, well, we have a co- we have a few things cooking uh, over there, over at, at Pride of Detroit. Uh, we're closing out our community mock draft. Uh, we're going to, um, I think the first round ends like Tuesday or something like that. And then I'll have a couple more. We, we, we asked uh, our contributors to also help us out with the second round. And so I picked a couple of second round picks. And so I'm going to do some write-ups on those guys. So we'll have a couple more profiles on them. We're going to get to a point where we um, start doing the, uh, I think the Lions should draft this player and then we'll do some profiles. So that's really kind of where we're headed. Uh, we still have some mock drafts that we're going to try and pump out to, to, to appease the, uh, the fan base that can't get enough of, of those mock drafts. And um, when we get to actual draft coverage, we already have our game plan laid out. We have a, we have a big Excel document with all of our ideas and things we want covered. And 
Uh, we typically tend to cover anywhere between um, 100 to 120 articles uh, that we write during that draft. It's 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 a ton of information, a lot of fun stuff. And so next two weeks are going to be busy leading up to that. And then we're just going to just unload uh, on, on, on content uh, during and then the week after the draft, we kind of we kind of trickle back and cover pick up the articles that we didn't uh, cover or didn't have time to cover during during the draft itself. So a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff coming down the pipe. It's just a matter of of time at this point. You know, we have these we have articles we want. I want to I would really like to get that um, that offensive line article out. Um, I kind of you know showed you guys explained the tier. I want to get that done. So it's just a matter of. Uh, it's just a, a matter of trying to get time because, you know, I still have, you know, my, my daughters have a concert on Wednesday that I, that I uh, get to go to and uh, they're in this uh, thing together. It's pretty cool. And um, they, uh, my wife has her job, which is uh, long hours for her, which is always hard. And so, yeah, it's just time. Time is my enemy this time of year, but we have uh, we have a really good plan and we've done, I, I, I believe, a, a really good job of covering the draft in recent years. And we're just going to continue to elevate that more. So look, keep that keep that pride of Detroit tab bookmarked. Fantastic. Don't forget to follow Eric at Eric Schlitt on Twitter. I'm sure you've heard that from at Pride of Detroit before. Also, don't forget his Patreon. Go and get his draft board because, you know, that's some great stuff. Uh, our next show is on Monday, live first round mock draft for all of us. So there's going to be five or six of those all going at once, which is pandemonium. But do go and check that out. Um, college show, and you're going to do one this week? Yeah, we're doing the one on Wednesday that we're meant to this week. I've got Junie coming on. Um, it's the, the Mac show. Yeah. The Mac show that we do. Yeah, we're, we're giving we're giving love to the Mac this week. So that's going to be fun. So join us on Wednesday for that. <laughs> Laura has just messaged on Twitch saying, and his wife Uh-oh. made him build a fire pit today too. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. man, you it, poor guy. It, it, in between the uh in between the uh the Spotify live show that we did, I was uh moving bags of uh mulch and building fire pits and all kinds of fun stuff. So that just it's 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 beautiful outside and it's it's time to uh get the children out and off the uh technology. Free agency must have been fun when they made all those signings early. You trying to go about your day with all those <laughs> signings going on. It was because Jeremy was on vacation, uh, and while he did contribute, uh, he was on vacation, and so that made things very fun. Uh, he would he would walk away from the beach and, and, and write, which was you know more than I might have done if I was on vacation, uh, but. <laughs> uh yeah free agency was was intense i i the, i think the only signing i missed outright was the gardner johnson one because i uh put my phone on the charger and then i went and put my kids to bed and i'm like all casual you know talking to them about you know what's going on what's coming up in the future you know we're talking we're and then i walk back to the computer and it's like text messages slack channel alerts and that and like Jeremy's already wrote an article, and I was just like, "Uh oh, um, that was the I got to I got to catch up quick moment uh, during the uh, during the uh, free agency period for sure." Uh, just to finish up, don't forget about our draft show as well. If you're not watching Pride of Detroit, it's one we're on for all three days. 
with catch-up shows in between, 22 hours live streaming, 31 guests from 31 different teams. It's going to be an insane show, so go and check that out. You know where to find us on the socials, so I won't repeat them now. Eric, thank you so much for hanging with us for so long. Amazing to speak to you again. Guys in the chat, fantastic as always. Looking forward to see you next time on the Royal Alliance UK podcast. But for now, one pride. One pride. One bride.